Welcome to Transparency with Diana B, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. In this podcast, we explore some of the deepest struggles and hardships that many advisors face and bring these issues out into the open so that others may find healing. Join us for this journey where we explore ways to overcome the stresses and anxieties as Diana draws from years of expertise and guest experts to manage the personal challenges of advisors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Transparency with Diana B, a podcast by wealthmanagement.com. My name is Diana Britton, and I'm the managing editor of wealthmanagement.com. For those of you who are new to the podcast, each episode focuses on a personal development issue facing financial advisors and financial services professionals. Guests come on and talk to me about their journey dealing with the struggle and how they found healing eventually through that struggle. My guest today is Esther Sabo. She's the founder and CEO of Gates Pass Advisors, a fee-only advisory firm in Los Altos, California. Esther, I'm so glad you could join me on the podcast today. And thank you just so much for being willing to share your story with us today. Well, thank you, Diane. I'm really honored to be here. It is a tender subject, but I am happy to share. Well, I won't say I'm happy to share, but I am. (laughs) (laughs) I'm more than willing to share uh, my experience. Yeah, it's hard to, to open up about such raw emotional times in your life. So Esther has a, she also has a podcast of her own. It's called Women and Wealth, where she shares her practical and personal experiences to help other women brave life's transitions. And today she's here to share one of her personal experiences with us, which was her late husband's passing and the ordeal that led to his death. And, you know, right now we're all faced with a lot of uncertainty, hopelessness, you know, with COVID-19, the economy, the markets, our political system. And I think we all can just learn a lot from Esther today in terms of how she braved her way through a very scary, uncertain time in her life. So, in uh, you know, and I'll let you, you know, tell the story, but, uh, you know, in June, I guess, June 2014, Yes, was you? Uh, she was on vacation with her and uh, with her husband in Russia, and he went into cardiac arrest and was in the hospital for several weeks. Um, so tell me, you know, start at the beginning. How did how did his health problems arise? You know, it was really out of the blue, Diana. He was getting a foot surgery for a bone spur behind his Achilles. And he was uh, in the pre-op appointment, which was just in the doctor's office. We weren't in the surgical suite or anything yet. And as part of that, the doctor checked his heart and went, "Eh, you know, that's a little odd sounding. And and he recommended us to speak to our primary care. And David had been very good about keeping up with his appointments and nothing had Mm -hmm. shown up, but he went back to her. She referred him to a cardiologist and turned out he was in atrial fibrillation and he was diagnosed with heart failure. I mean, Mm. it's just out of the blue. He Mm. was 58. No, is that right? He was he was 56 years old when he was diagnosed and, um, it just came out of the blue. Mm. And 
And so tell us about how, um, I mean, he, he, he still wanted to go on vacation. You guys had been taking these vacations every year, right? And uh, he still yeah. wanted to go. David and David loved to travel. One of the things he loved about his work, he was a technical trainer and initially we're in Silicon Valley. And so he'd worked for startups. And when you're with a startup, you get sent all over the place in the, in the role that he had as a, as a Mm -hmm. trainer to teach those who purchase the software, how to use it. And he loved going all over the world. It was amazing what he would do. He would uh, go to Singapore and just go all around Singapore and he would go to different parts of China and then hop a train in China to go to another part of China. I mean, he just loved, loved exploration. And I'm first generation American. My parents came from, uh, my mom from Canada, Western Canada, my dad from Eastern Europe and Hungary. And in the last years of my dad's life, and uh, we would spend a considerable amount of time because my dad returned to Budapest, Hungary in his later years, we would often go to Budapest and then we would travel a bit around there. And he said in 2013, after we got back from a trip, he said, you know, I'd really love going to see your relatives, but I'd really like to go somewhere else on our vacation. He often lamented that I couldn't join him on his business trip some, uh, very much because of mm-hmm. my own business. So he, uh, I said, okay, where do you want to go? And his choices, he, his choices were either Russia or China. And he chose Russia. He grew up during, uh, the time of, you know, the man going to the moon for the first time. And he, you know, it was the Russian space race at that time. So that was his mm-hmm. interest. And at that time, it was 2013 when we were talking about this and his health condition had not improved. And the doctors from the beginning could not say yet, uh, you know, he has two years or 20 years, or it was just very uncertain. And so mm. we chose, normally we would cho- choose to just get on a plane and go somewhere. In fact, when we went to Indonesia, uh, we went there in 2009. And after we got there, I was reading the travel books and it was saying, these are the vaccinations you should get before you go. And it's like, mm. well, well, <laughs> didn't do that. Uh, and for this trip, we chose to do a river cruise and we thought that would be the safer way to go because mm. there would be a doctor on board and we let them know in advance. We booked it through a travel agent, We, which will be important later in the story. We got travel insurance, which will also be later in the story, which we had never done. Uh, but given he was not in the best of health, we tried to just insulate those uh, the risks as much as possible. And when we his his own mom my mother-in-law actually passed away from a stroke about 2 weeks before we left wow and it was really hard uh, um loved my mother-in-law miss my mother-in-law every day and it was hard for him and he went uh, in the week before we left on our trip he went up to help his sister with closing up her apartment and he came back and he had more edema and those who have heart conditions know that one has to be really careful with edema or swelling. Mm. Uh, The heart pumps out a lot of the heart, the blood flow from the heart goes to excretion pumping out through our kidneys, what needs to be excreted out. And when the Mm. heart is weaker, then the excretion isn't as um, strong. And so one can hold on to fluids, 
and he came back, he was more bloated. So we went to the cardiologist, our cardiologist the day before we were to leave just to say, is this okay for us to go? He'll right. be flying. It's a long journey. And he did say, yes, I absolutely think that you should go. And we had already done a lot of pre-planning. We had, he had to weigh every day because of this bloating issue at home every day way to see if he was taking on fluid, taking on fluid. And mm -hmm. we had asked the cruise line, do you have a, a, you have a doctor, do you have a scale on board? And they said, no, 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 this is a vacation thing. You don't want to weigh. So we were bringing our own scale. We had been in touch with the, in our application or, you know, we'd said he needs to have low sodium or no sodium foods. This needs to be available to him because salt, you know, retains fluid. Mm -hmm. And after we arrived on the ship, they, you know, we said again, no sodium, low sodium for meals. Very important. When we went to our first meal, low sodium, no sodium. Yes, yes, yes. We have that. Mm -hmm. And what became apparent as he weighed and after it was a, basically a two week vacation, we were on 10 days of that. We're on the boat nine or 10. Uh, mm -hmm. It became really clear that he was taking on a lot of fluid. Mm -hmm. And we again went and said no sodium. And the weight person that was waiting on us was like, what was confused. And we said, oh, you know, pointed to the salt shaker. She's like, Oh, and it was like, Oh no, Oh no, no, no. Um, and, um, about a two days after that, we were, we were on a, but you know, you're on a bus with a lot of these tours. You you're on a boat for overnight, but you stop in different places, right? You get on a bus and, we were on a bus tour and he was not comfortable. Mm. And there was a point at which they said, okay, for those, and they'd have been talked about before, for those who want to try the Moscow subway system, we're going to let a bunch of you off for anyone who wants to try. If you're having trouble walking, don't go because it's a long walk through the tunnels and all of this, but you will meet up again later. Mm. And so we had already agreed, yes, I'll do the subway. He'll stay on the bus. And in my mind, it was like, well, <laughs> we're, they're going to drop us off. We'll go through subways. I mean, I grew up outside of Manhattan, so I'm used to subways. You know, you pop on, right. pop off. And, you know, I thought, oh, they'll they'll pick us up five stops down just so we could go, ooh, ah, uh, the Moscow subway system. I didn't realize that it would be a four-hour separation. Mm. And where the subway took us was to Red Square. Mm. And so I'm walking around at Red Square, and I have this horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach. I just did not feel right being separated from him. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I look around and I'm just sort of, okay, I'm here. This is what I can do. Look around. I can't control this. Uh, but as soon as that bus showed up, I jumped right on and he was the only one on the bus and he was semi-conscious. And mm -hmm. I, um, there was another stop that I was going to do and there was no way I said, Nope, I'm going back with him to the boat. And I just, stayed with him and just held him. And he was just saying how he was cold mm. and he was semi-conscious and I just stayed with him. And, um, we got back to the boat dock and one of my, the, the person who was right next to us in the next cabin, uh, his name was Paul. Uh, he was one of the wonderful people who I connected with on this trip. I said, Paul, would you please stay with David? I'm going to run and get the doctor. And he said, absolutely. And I ran to the doctor and I said, my husband is not well. I need you to come. 
and bring, you know, he's, I think he's suffering. And I'd been through this before, um, where they get what's called uh, pleural edema, where the, it, the fluid goes into the lungs and it makes it hard for, for breathing. Right. This is not unusual with heart failure. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be fatal. It's not great, but, um, I'd been through it with him, uh, here, probably the year before where the doctor, I called the doctor and he said, just bring him into the hospital, keep him upright, bring him in. And what they do is they put them on heavy diuretics and flush out the lungs and, Mm. you know, return them to normal capacity. And I just had the assumption that they would do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And what happened was she, she, I brought her on the boat and she went, it's a little blurry, but I know one of the things she had me go and get our passports. So I tear off to get our passports. And then when I come back, they're giving him oxygen, but it's just the size of a fix a flat can. It's Mm. a small thing with a, well, we're all used to masks now. So it's got like that kind of a mask attached Mm. with a rubber band to like a fix a flat can. And David was very nearsighted and he had to take off his glasses. And I said, is that helping? And he was like, well, you know, no, not Mm. really. And then they sent me off again. And when I came back, an ambulance was there and he was in the back of the ambulance on a gurney laid down. And I said, he can't lay down. This is not, you need to get him up. And that's where, again, it got blurry. I mean, I was trying to pull him up the, the, um, EMTs, I guess equivalent, um, were pulling him up and he just said, I can't breathe. And then he Mm. basically, I saw the color fade from his Mm. face and it turned out they did not have oxygen in the, in the ambulance either. And they had to wait for another ambulance. And I was just on the dock with, you know, all these semen around looking. And I think they're called like the, you know, I think of them as like the Julie from love boat, but he was a steward. He was a chief steward who would tell Mm. us about the activities each day. He was there. And I said, would you please send them away? Send everyone away. This isn't a show. And Mm. he did, he sent everyone away. And then I was just shaking and they closed the doors to the ambulance. And I knew that it was very, very bad. And I remember standing there thinking, gosh, is this how it ends? Like here, um, they, another ambulance came, they, I could not go with him to the hospital in Russia. It is for ICU for very critical patients. They don't want the family there. Mm -hmm. And so I was told to go back on the ship and Mm. I called somehow got through to our cardiologist in the States. And I told mm-hmm. him what had happened and he goes, well, they have to let you go. It's just inhumane. I said, well, they, you know, when you're in an uncertain situation in a different country and it's overwhelming and you're in shock, it's like, what's the right thing to do? So yeah, you don't speak the language. No, I yeah. actually, <laughs> actually did when I, uh, way back in the early, in the mid eighties, I worked, I was a engineering drafts person. And I worked in a firm where it was a number of Russian engineers. So I did pick up some Russian then that was actually proved kind of helpful. But yes, it, I am no way fluent in Russian. So I mean, tell me about those few weeks, you know, when he was in the hospital in Russia, 
and you were also dealing with some financial um, uh, problems, right? Because they they were billing you um, for the hospital stay and the insurance hadn't kicked in or tell me about that. Yeah, it was, I mean, that the next day I got to go see him in the hospital, the ship sent someone to be a translator. And then the hospital also sent someone to be a translator. And these very young women, you know, were in the car going and I'm just crying. And these very young women are like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And when I get to the hospital, one of the first things they say is we need a credit card because until we know your insurance situation, we have to cover for his care. And of course I gave them the credit card and I met with the doctors and they had said, we've put him into a medical coma. And thankfully, because of technology, I was able to log on to his medical portal here and show them the medicines he had been on and his care record. Mm. And a day or so later, he was in a hospital that was on a good day. It was about 45 minutes away in traffic on most days. It was about an hour and a half each way to get there because traffic in Moscow is horrendous. And about a day later, I thought, I kind of should check my credit card, but I'm nervous to do it because of security. Mm -hmm. And I had gotten in touch with our travel agent about what had happened. And she was fabulous. I know one of the challenges in this world, it's like, oh, with technology, you can do everything yourself. But there is nothing that can take the place of an actual human being when you're in crisis and Mm. on a trip. Uh, And I spoke with her and I said, this is what's happening. She said, heck with security. You've got to find out what's going on. Just change your password. And I, when you're, when I was in crisis, and this is, I think, true for many, having just directions I find in my practice with financial planning and investments, I work in Silicon Valley. There's many smart people around and there's almost like this shame of like, well, I should be able to do all this and I know technology and I know this. And uh, sometimes it's very helpful when we're going through times like this in the world, just to sit and talk with somebody and have, this is, this is the perspective. This is why we're going this way. And Mm. it's one of the lessons I took from this. It's like, yes, just rely on somebody else. Okay. Yes. It makes sense get on the account and see what's going on and change my password. And I did. And what I saw was that they had charged me already $20,000, 10,000 for day one, 10,000 for day two. And I thought, my goodness, I can't have this keep going on. I have a $35,000 limit on the card. (laughs) I don't know. I could get it increased, but I can't keep paying for this. And so I had to coordinate tell the hospital, find someone at the hospital that I could talk to about the billing. I, because of Facebook, which I wasn't a Facebook person before this trip, but through Facebook and letting people know what was happening, one of my friends said, oh, she was in H, she was, her, her career was in HR. She knew the head of HR at David's company. And I needed to talk to David's company to let them know what had happened and say, we won't be home and he won't be back at work. And through her, she connected and like on day three, which was also the first day not being on the cruise, um, was able to connect us and get the insurance going to cover that and then refund the money back to the card or a certain amount of money back to the card. Mm. And so 
At one point, your your profession kind of kicked in, right? You're planning, mm-hmm. you're being a financial advisor, um, you know, doing the logistics. That sort of kicked in for Absolutely. you, right? Yeah. I mean, first it's like you're just in shock and I couldn't eat. I mean, I couldn't eat really for the first week. And my cabin neighbor, Paul and his wife, uh, Sylvia, she was, they, she was like, they're British. And she was like, come on, come on, Esther, you've got to eat for <laughs> David. And I would just, oh, it was just awful. Oh, uh, and then I would say, okay. Um, the other, well, one of the things before all that happened, it was just the people on the ship that we had befriended. Mm. And because we were near the end of the cruise, it was time to pack up. And we had had a two, we had a two day extension planned afterwards. So we weren't just planned to leave right away. And I was faced with this packing up all the suitcases. And I just, uh, so much of the time of finances, personal finances and investment, uh, because of the reasons I just mentioned, people are reticent to ask for help. They're reticent to say, what do you think? Because again, people, you know, I'm supposed to know everything. Mm. And it was, that's probably the first thing was to say, let me ask people for help. Mm. Uh, I'm also a woman in recovery. I've been sober for over, over 30 years. And so that's still a tenant, you know, you, you gotta ask for help to get through the tough times. So I went to uh, another woman that I had met who was obviously a mover and shaker type of person. She was a fundraiser in her career. And Mm. I said, would you please help me pack David's suitcase? I'm having a hard time doing it by myself. And and thank goodness. I mean, that is one of the lessons I've learned from this is how important it is to ask for help because the goodness of people and being present to others' goodness when you're in a state of shock, panic, grief, loss, terror is so helpful in just moving on to the next step. Um, she helped me pack things up. Another woman on the ship who I had met who had lost um, spouses in the past said, be careful. We were, it was on the last day when everyone's leaving, everyone's loading onto buses to getting onto the plane or wherever they're going next. And slowly the ship is emptying out. And she and I sat for a little bit and she said, be careful. The next week, two weeks, month, you're in shock. Be careful with where you're going, what you're stepping. You don't want to trip or hurt yourself. And Mm -hmm. that has also stayed with me. Like be where my feet are, be, pay attention. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the first things. The next was when I ultimately, while well, I went to the hotel next where we were staying and there it was dealing with the financials, letting people know. I mean, my, I'd let my sister know right away what happened um, and David's work and reaching out to others who I trusted and said, would you please, I'm going to give you my passwords to the credit cards. Would you please check and make sure nothing untoward is going on? And then during a, a couple from the, from the cruise was staying in that hotel. And I said, could I hang out with you? <laughs> Lucky them, you know, <laughs> this woman in pain, but could I stay with you for meals? Could I just connect with you? Because I, it was so. We needed some connection. Yeah. Yes. And connection is another thing that's really important during times like this too. stay connected. Don't isolate because our brains can spin all sorts of terrifying Mm. stories. And 
they he said one the guy when we went to the morning breakfast he said there is this amazing waiter who has this incredible command of the english language i mean it's just impressive and it's like a light went on inside me and i said I want to meet him because I need to get a cell phone, a local cell phone. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I have no idea when I'm going home. And I need a way to communicate in country with uh, the doctors, the medical. Uh, I think I had already been in touch with the embassy uh, over the hospital issue. Uh, mm -hmm. And he he brought the guy over. I told him what was going on, said, could you help me get a cell phone? And he said, let me talk to my manager. And he did. And he, the manager let him off work. And we all trooped over to a cell phone store. He got me all set up with a cell phone. And that was so critical to the next couple weeks to staying in touch, giving others in the country who needed to reach me a local number to reach me. It was very, very key. And I have still kept that cell phone to today. I took the battery out, but it was just such a lifeline. It was, I couldn't quite let it go even to this day. Yeah. That's something that a lot of people that I talk to on this podcast mention is the need to ask for help and having surrounding yourself with people that um, can support you um, through, through hard times. I mean, even, even if they're strangers, you know, mm -hmm. you know like that, but um you know, I guess, tell me a little bit about um, how, how you finally got home. I know, you know, you, he finally got a medevac and, and did get back to the U.S. And, and what happened? Um, I think um, getting home in the, in the two weeks before the, briefly, the other part of my financial advisory and planning training was to have a plan each day because it mm. was completely unknown. Mm. And I had to, I stayed in touch with my office. I had to get the medevac. I called the travel insurance. How does that work? I was put into a clinic that took care of um, uh, expatriates for their medical care, as well as w wealthy Russians. Mm -hmm. And I had a room there. Uh, my meals were brought to me. They were uh, the second week I was able to eat and they were fabulous local meals. Mm -hmm. And again, having Eastern European in my blood, the the food felt really like comfort food. Yeah. Uh, I was very well taken care of. And I woke up every morning, like, I can't believe this is happening. And mm -hmm. I would lie in bed. I would read through Facebook posts of people reaching out to me. And then I would have a plan for the day, very simple plan for the day that involved have a meal. I would do some hand laundry, you know, take a shower, take a walk. I could not go very far because my Russian visa had expired and I was warned, do not go on the subways, do not go anywhere. You, mm. If they pick you up without a visa, it'll be very, very bad. And, and I had no desire to go sightsee or anything, but I did take a walk, close walk every day and, um, and then talk to whoever I needed to talk to. Doctors, mm -hmm. go see David, go do that long journey there and back, visit with him, sit with him, connect with him. He was in a coma. He was completely unresponsive to me on the physical, um, you know, I'd hold his hand and he wouldn't hold back or anything like that. But I felt like he was within, I felt he was trying really hard to come back and I wouldn't stay too long because I felt like it was such a burden for him. He's trying so hard. It was exhausting. And I could feel him try, 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 try. And then oh, it was exhausting. So I'd stay for maybe at the most 40 minutes and then mm. make my way back. Um, I would listen to podcasts. I'd listen to 
comedian podcasts or something more lighthearted mm-hmm. interview podcasts. Um, and, and then yes, the day came when we were told we were cleared to fly. And that was a Friday. And I thought, great, we'll pop on a plane tomorrow. But that was not to be the case because we had no visas and Mm. you need visas to be able to exit the country. So the embassy came over on the Sunday and spent the day doing the visa applications for both of us. And then the, the medical crew flew from the U.S. on Monday and we were to fly Tuesday morning. Mm. So that was another piece like, oh, you think you're all set, you're done. And then you're not. Oh, yeah. And so coming back, even that morning, that Tuesday morning, um, the night before I had to figure out what to do with all our stuff because you're on a medevac plane. You can't carry lots of luggage back. So yeah. um, I was on with DSL. DHL, <laughs> DSL, yeah. something else. DHL, and just everything. It was logistics, 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 yeah. logistics to the end. And that morning, I met. We met up at the hospital, and the ambulance was there. They loaded David up, and then we're all waiting. And I said, "Well, why are we waiting?" And they said, "Well, we can go, but we're waiting for your ride to the airport. But <laughs> we really should not wait too long because." They're using up fuel to keep all the respirators going and all the equipment. And I said, just go, just go to the airport. I will figure it out. Just go. Mm. And then, you know, there goes the ambulance and I'm left by myself outside at this gray day. Russia is very gray. I will let you know, Russia is very gray, even in the (laughs) summer. And I'm standing there going, well, I sure hope this works. (laughs) Mm. But my ride comes and I use that cell phone because he didn't take me to the right part of the airport. Um, they finally, he took me to the place where the, the private planes go off from. And I thought, good, we can go, but no, it was probably another five hours wait there. And then we finally, they loaded David up. I went through the exit with the visa check and all of that got on the plane, started up and we took off and, and I was like, Oh good, that's over. And then boom, we hit like this air pocket and dropped Mm. precipitously. And I went, Oh, and they said, that's okay. That happens. That's all right. I mean, I'd never been in a small plane like that and hit an air pocket. And they said, it's okay. And we, it was a 24 hour flight. Um, because it's a f- small plane, you have to refuel frequently. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we flew Moscow to Ireland, Ireland to Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia to Rochester, Minnesota, Rochester, Minnesota to San Jose, California. And, you know, wow been taking care of all these logistics for these weeks and, and realized that in this two weeks, I didn't know it would be two weeks. I was wondering, oh, will I be home by Thanksgiving? I had no idea until that Friday when they said, okay, you can go. Um, and I got into an airplane hangar because each time you land to refuel, you can get off. And I would walk around and I went into the airplane hangar and I said, okay, I'll make myself a cup of tea. Mm. And I looked at the hot water carafe and I looked at the stack of styrofoam cups and I looked at the tea bags and I was like, okay, I know those three things go together, but how do I do that? And it was like my brain just had run out of You're gas. just spent, yeah. <laughs> um, and then we, we landed 24 hours later and he was loaded onto a ambulance 
And the, I went, I hopped into the front of the, well, I didn't hop, but I got into the front of the ambulance and it was just very sad, you know, mm. thinking of all the enthusiasm we had when we left on that trip and getting to a new place and traveling together and then coming home in this way with him mm. unconscious on a gurney and me in front of the, in the front seat of the ambulance. It just mm. felt very, very sad. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I know that he, he didn't survive. Um, and so tell us about those last moments, you know, um, when you find out that it, he wasn't going to, to live and, and how did you feel? Yeah, it was, you know, I'd held on to hope. I had held on to hope like, okay, he's in a coma, but when we get back, I imagine everyone feels like this about their yeah. own country, you know, right. our own country will fix him. Right. Right. It just, I mean, I had seen it myself at the, you know, at the boat dock, he was without oxygen for way too long. And I had known that, but I thought, oh, maybe, you know, I could feel him struggling to come back. Mm. And um, they did tests on him. On, and then the doctor sat uh, me down. My mom was with me. My sister was with me. And they just said, there's just no chance. And I just thought, okay, you know, just that I didn't fight against it. Because again, how many times have we worked through with clients as financial planners and advisors the so much discussion about end of life. How do you want your end of life to be? Mm -hmm. No, I don't want to be held, kept alive through extraordinary means. Uh, David and I had just had that conversation again. We had our advanced care directives written up years before, but we had just had that conversation again because his mom had the stroke, uh, but she couldn't speak, but she was able to be communicated with, do you want to be kept alive on the ventilator? And she was very clear, no. And her advanced care directives was no. And she stayed alive for four days off the ventilator. And David and I had had that conversation again before we left for Russia. Just what would you like me to do? And he, and he goes, gosh, I don't know if I could make that decision for you. And here it was confronting me. And it was like, okay, no, let him go. And mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's always so surprising and in my practice too, when we've talked about estate planning, I've heard so many times over the years, I don't care what happens, I'll be dead. You know, or people say we plan that people live till age 100 and they're all like, oh, I hope I don't live that long. It, it won't be that long. And there's, I think, a bit of a perception that once one is ready to die, you just die. And the body is amazingly resilient and strong. And even though he'd been through this ordeal, even though it was he'd been on a ventilator, it's not like they remove one from a ventilator and one goes. I mean, they, they removed right. his pacemaker removed the ventilator. And I really thought that, okay, he's going to go. And six hours later, he was still alive. Mm -hmm. And I was with him. My sister was with him. My mom had said her goodbyes. And I just felt we were, it was very peaceful with him. And all of a sudden I just felt hugely, hugely overwhelmed. And I said, I need to take a step back. And I had been counseled by our counselor who had done a lot of work in the death and dying area. When mm -hmm. we were going to sit with his mom, she said, don't be surprised that she doesn't pass away with you present. Often they need for you to leave in order mm -hmm. to pass because they want to stay with you. Mm -hmm. And we did step away for a cup of tea and uh, it was probably 10 minutes later, I got the phone call in the hospital that he had passed and we went back up and it was all very, very peaceful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, just listening to your story, it's so, uh, it's, 
it's, I'm just enthralled with it. I mean, I, it's hard to keep a dry eye yeah. um, listening. And, um, you know, I think about my, my father's passing as well. I, was, I wasn't in the room um, when he passed away. He had cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we were, we have been, he had been alive for days before he finally, you know, everything shut down, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, I wasn't in the room and I don't, I don't think anybody was in the room either. It's, um, but um, gosh, it's hard. Um, mm-hmm. I think for all those people right now where they can't be with their loved ones at all. Yeah. My goodness. Uh, my mom is staying with us right now and she's 96 and she keeps saying, why am I with you? And we tell her about the COVID again. And we just say, if you're in the hospital, we can't visit you. And if you pass away, it'll be by yourself. And it's just mm. a horrible, I just feel for those people. And it's happened yeah. in my family since this has happened. So it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just wonder, you know, how, how is, how did your experience, cause you, you've, you've really moved on with your life and you're still, you know, doing great things and, and working with women. And, um, how did your experience through this, you know, shape who you are today and help you, you know, to, to move on with your life and work as a financial advisor? Cause I know for my mother, it was very, very hard for her to, um, to move on with her life and, and move on to the next chapter. And so I'm wondering, you know, how did that whole experience shape who you are? Yeah, I think that'll be something I'll be answering for many years, you know, <laughs> as each thing goes by. I mean, I was 49 when David passed. He was almost 59. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just very, I, I'd certainly counseled and worked with women before this in my practice. And going through it, it's, it's, it's geared me a lot more towards women in transition, mm-hmm. navigating this. Mm-hmm. It's made me more humble uh, in terms of, again, just continuing to reach out for help, how important and critical that is. I reached out to a wonderful planner who's also a good friend, going through the whole um, administrative work, the planning work for for me. I knew enough to say, I don't want to do all this myself. Yes, technically I'm proficient, but I want somebody else by my side. To And she spoke with me exactly how I speak with my clients. Like, mm. no, you don't need to make that decision now. Let's just set this aside, set this aside and just walking through that. And I think the other, th- I know another piece of it is there's a part of me, Diana, that's always belittles myself, says, mm-hmm. you know, how important is it what you have to say and do? And um, I had been in a business partnership that had functioned well. It just wasn't the right fit for me. And and when mm-hmm. David got diagnosed, with a diagnosis comes a lot of doctor appointments. And I had kind of put my career ambitions on a shelf mm-hmm. um, because of how I was navigating the partnership as well as David's illness, took care of my clients, loved my clients. But beyond that, I was like, okay, this, we're on a static place here. When he passed, it was really clear to me as, you know, this is not a dress rehearsal. I, and, 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 and I, and and I don't know, a mentor or coach of mine had said to me before he passed, and I was talking about what to do with my business life. He said, well, would your husband like to see you happy in your work? And I said, absolutely. And David had always been a huge cheerleader of my work. And Mm. 
one of the things I did is I say, okay, I'm going, the reason I'd never done a practice on my own is because of fear. Mm. And I thought, you know what, if I could go through this situation in Moscow with all this going on and seeing what I saw and experiencing and come through it, you know what, I will navigate whatever comes my way. And it really helped me just deal with fear of moving forward. I mean, that's on the career level. I launched my practice. I am doing the podcast. I am saying what my experience is as well, uh, as well as the practical issues going on before us now and market and all of that. But what do we do to navigate through this so that we can spend all this time building wealth? But if we're mentally in huge amounts of pain, what's the benefit of that? Mm. And so that's one piece. And then the other was just how critical self-care is and was. It was mm. really important for me to, uh, it was so important for me to get back to work. I, I uh, David passed on June 27th and I was back to work after July 4th. And I wow. just, I didn't come back at 60 hour weeks, but it was important for me to have routine mm-hmm. and to go and to take care of stuff. And then to say, okay, and I, I'm basically an introvert, but I also need connection with others. As we talked about, isolation isn't healthy. And I would make a plan to be with one of my friends on the weekend. As I mentioned, I'm in recovery, so I stay connected with my recovery community. And I think what it's done is just that whole um, philosophy, if it's not a dress rehearsal, um, I did fall in love again. I got remarried last October and I'm so, so happy. Thank you. And, uh, and I'm so grateful that my husband and I don't think I could have married him if he didn't have this attitude, but it's not an easy attitude to have where he knows that I do get touched with the pain of the loss of mm. David. And he's not threatened by that. He's not, and I, you know, I share most of it with others, but he's also very tender and emotionally supportive and That's how great. key that is. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I'm, I'm afraid we're, we're just about out of time. Um, you know, again, this, your story is just so enthralling, Esther. I, I thank you so much for, for being so vulnerable about such an emotional time in your life and being so brave after all you've been through. Um, so thank you for sharing. Well, Diana, you're, thank you for your tenderness. And it's, it, it truly is. There's behind me, there's a whole team of people. And uh, it's not just me out there being brave. It's just the reflection of all the love and kindness and support I've received throughout the journey. So thank you so much. Yeah. And if you'd like to reach out to Esther Sabo, you can reach her at gatespassadvisors.com. Click on the contact button on their on her uh, on her website there you can also listen to her podcast women and wealth on gatespassadvisors.com and this information will also all be in the show notes if you have a struggle yourself and you wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations please feel free to reach out to me at transparency with diana b at gmail.com I'd like to thank you for listening to Transparency with Diana B. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Transparency with Diana B podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. 
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding your particular situation.